let's move on to the pendulum years. I think I was swept up in that hope. But now all the voices are there again. And again, I think this is a real strength of the country. The tribalism is, it seems, a lot more. But now what seems to have changed is, is the megaphone of social media. And there may be diversity of races, but probably homogeneity of aspirations and pot. Welcome to the Life of the Mind podcast, where our curiosity is explored through unique experiences and diverse perspectives. Today, Jake Chaco, Raj Oza, and Tom Chaco will conclude this series as they share experiences and interpretations of race relations from the time President Obama was elected U.S. President in 2008. If you haven't listened to the first two episodes in this series, I encourage you to pause and go back. And now, another brief reminder of U.S. history before we get started. The 1980s through early 2000s offered hope of progress, more opportunities, and widespread cultural acceptance of African Americans and people of color. But there was an undertone of hidden discrimination and brewing racial tension as crime and incarceration increased. This was very specific to geography and neighborhood and often open to interpretation. But the LA riots of the early 1990s brought worldwide attention to some injustices in the so-called justice system. We fast forward to 2008. Most of the country, if not world, was elated when the United States elected its first African-American president, not in the majority race. Even those who politically opposed him appreciated the momentous event and what it represented. While President Barack Obama looked the part of an African-American president, he was not, in fact, of any slave ancestry. His mother was a white Midwesterner, and his father was born in Africa, attended university here. President Obama was raised mostly by his white grandparents and married Michelle Robinson, a woman from Chicago with deep African-American cultural roots. By virtue of his skin tone and wife, President Obama was easily accepted as one of their own by Americans with generations of slavery and Jim Crow era experiences. And by virtue of his accent, upbringing, and education, for he went to Columbia and Harvard, President Obama was also comfortable to many whites. Towards the end of his second term, racial tensions seemed to be on the rise, particularly in altercations with police. Ferguson, Missouri was placed on a map for the police shooting of Michael Brown. Several blacks across the nation suffered similar fates. According to a Gallup poll, there was a 20-point drop in the percent of Americans who thought relations between whites and blacks were very or somewhat good. From 2000 to 2013, the number of whites who agreed with the statement hovered around 70% before suddenly dropping to 51% in 2013. The percent of blacks who agreed race relations were good hovered in the mid-60s before also dropping to 45% in 2015. Then comes the 2016 presidential election. Some were shocked when an outsider to government and a blunt-speaking, sometimes profane, scandal-riddled real estate mogul was elected to the highest office of the United States. President Trump 
capitalized on a growing distrust of government insiders. He also riled up anger in poor rural America who had mostly been left behind by globalization, the knowledge economy, and economic growth experienced more in coastal cities. Many believed his election proved racism against Blacks was rampant and an obvious backlash against the first Black president. It's objectively hard to find evidence or data to prove this. Election results closely followed political party delineation of the prior two decades, and it's hard to disentangle reasons people vote for a particular candidate. However, President Trump did drum up fear of immigrants, particularly from Mexico or any Muslim nation. And a few white supremacist groups openly supported Trump's campaign without him formally denouncing them. So cause and effect can be tricky to determine. What we do know is that according to the same Gallup poll earlier quoted, the percent of American Blacks who believed race relations were good continued to decline from 45% in 2015 to only about 33% in 2021 after the harrowing year of 2020. So now, the final discussion by our three protagonists, Jake Chaco, Raj Oza, and Tom Chaco. In this episode, they are reflecting on personal experiences and observations of racial trends from the early 2000s to today. As you learned in the previous episodes, Jake, Raj, and Tom often straddled white and Black America. They experienced racism as people of color and immigrants, but were sometimes treated differently than African-American counterparts by virtue of where they lived, studied, and worked, or where they came from. There were very few Indian immigrants when they arrived in the 1960s, but over the subsequent decades, an increase in immigration changed the dynamic of towns, universities, and companies. A quick caveat. This episode, more than the other three in the series, goes beyond just stories and gets into interpretations of American social and political activities that may not be shared by all listeners. We encourage you to challenge ideas you hear on this podcast or read or hear in the news. Remember, contested and compassionate dialogue is a foundation for this podcast. So share this with a friend and listen to their thoughts. Okay, with that said, here's Jake kicking off the next question. Let's move on to the pendulum years. We had 9-11. We went through the, uh, you know, the Iraq wars and everything. And then Obama, and I still remember, I was in India uh, at the time on an expat assignment with Cisco, but I remember the, it was declared that Obama was the winner. And for this uh, Indian immigrant kid who intellectually wanted the Amer- African-Americans to progress and indeed the United States is, as an idea to progress towards a more perfect union, I thought this is a climax. We have arrived, if you will, right? And it was the era of hope and everything. It's hardly an arrival as opposed to a whiplash and a pendulum swing. So let's, let's get into that period, if you will, and, and, and just, just unpack that. Raj, what did you anticipate that when Obama happened, what was your hopes? And then uh, what happened in the subsequent 12 years of where we're at now? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, Palo Alto is kind of my California Evanston. You know, it's progressive. It's thoughtful. It's a university town in some ways, but it's not in other ways. It has its own identity outside of Stanford. Um, you know, it's just a wonderful place, and we feel so blessed. You know, this is where we want to be. This is where we're meant to be. This is, you know, all terrific. So we move into our house, 
And, you know, it's, it's the only home we could afford in Palo Alto in those days. And, uh, the yards a mess and this and that. And, uh, and I'm putting in the lawn. This woman comes up to me and kind of speaking to me really slowly and with a hint of a Hispanic accent and, you know, saying to me, you know, what a wonderful job I'm doing, you know, with, you know, she doesn't say it, but with the owner's yard, you know, how much do I charge, you know, for my labor? And yeah, like I had a hat on and I'm brown and, you know, beat up jeans. So she just kind of assumes must be a, must be a gardener, um, you know, a landscape guy. And it's like, okay, so that's there. And, you know, it's like unfortunate, but again, it's that mask, if you will. And, you know, a few years later, my daughter's in high school getting ready for college. And I go to, uh, you know, Pali, Palo Alto High School's uh, um, college guidance um, office. So I was working the yard, the same sort of thing. I decided not to change. Uh, so I was, you know, same thing, kind of dressed the same way I was when I was doing the lawn many years before. Um, but we'd, we kind of arrived in Palo Alto at this point in time. You know, I mean, Anna was like this really bright kid. Who, you know, our daughter's a bright kid. Everyone knows, loves her. My wife teaches in the district. It's like all good stuff. Our son's, you know, beloved in the district, all that. I show up. And, and it was almost immediate, like, oh, yeah. The junior college stuff is over there. If, you know, if your child wants to go to the army, there's stuff over there. There's just this assumption if you are a person of color and not Indian. Because I am positive. And obviously, I didn't ask her. I didn't challenge her. I didn't have that kind of an interaction like I did with a police officer in Chicago. I just assumed she misunderstood. Uh, I said, no, my daughter is Anu. She goes, oh, Anu's father. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. You know, you have an appointment. And so this was kind of the pre-Obama days. And this is Palo Alto. This is a you know, place that we live and love and are loved by, quite frankly. And then I worked on the Obama campaign, the first one. Um, I really believed that even if he didn't win, this was an amazing opportunity for progress, signal of progress. The suggestion that the world can actually keep moving in a more hopeful way. Yeah, I worked in Palo Alto in the Bay Area and stuff, and we'd do these Camp Obamas and we'd get things going. We'd set up offices. But at the time when Obama was running and we were setting up the East Palo Alto office, and Tom, I don't know if you know East Palo Alto, and maybe some of our listeners do and some of our listeners don't, uh, but East Palo Alto, when we moved first to Palo Alto, was predominantly black. And then it shifted to kind of a black Hispanic mix. And then now it's an even you know, larger demographic, a bit more gent- quite a bit more gentrified now. So I set up this office and I couldn't get anyone from Palo, not anyone. I could hardly get people from Palo to show up. Part of it is the right thing to do. I mean, how do you not set up an office in East Palo Alto where the African-American community is? There's something about that that suggests people i think you use the word tom in the abstract really want to do the thing the right thing and make it concrete electing a black man as president is pretty darn concrete but it still can be a little distant from what we do every day in our lives um you know showing up to east palo alto 
and kind of crossing over there, you know, going to an African-American church and handing out flyers and say, hey, come on over, you know, all that stuff. And getting over your own fears. I used to be afraid of going into East Palo Alto. Um, and some of it's real. Some of it's bogus. As you get older, you, you realize much, much, much more of it is bogus. You know, it's stuff that we fooled ourselves with or I fooled myself with. So, so yeah, so that's kind of my, my pendulum swing. It's really my personal pendulum there, Jake. And I, and I do, I, I do feel proud that the country that my family moved to has been able to make change happen. Um, and many, many people of all, you know, all, you know, shapes, sizes, colors, genders, you know, all that, you know, have, have enabled that to happen. So I do feel some great pride in that. Um, but I do, if we get slightly political, I do believe that there is a pendulum and there always has been in this country, maybe other countries that I don't know as well, but it's always done some swinging, but it's kind of been in a narrower band. Um, and I know we're going to get there, so I'll pause, but uh, I think the it's been real big now. And, you know, it's you know, swung really hard, you know, from, from Obama to Trump into where we are now. Let me just uh, dwell on that for a second, Raj, and just comment on, it seems to me that not just in this area, but on uh, almost anything from climate to pandemic, the swings are more violent. And so politically, they're more violent. Do you see anecdotally or observationally uh, that happening on, on race relations? Part of me, and I might be naive thinking on my part, uh, you know, uh, I, I like to integrate and smoothen out and, and, and just draw the straight regression line, right? Race relations are, are, uh, are, are getting better. But this pendulum swing is forced me to, 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 to pause there. Uh, do, do you, th you know, and there always have been ups and downs, the cycles, if you will, economic or whatever, but whether it's economic cycles or race relationship, the swings seem to be more violent right now. Uh, and, and any comment, Raj? So a question first, when you say violent, do you mean physically violent or do you mean psychologically or do you mean both? A little of both, but more psychologically. Yeah, I, mean, I feel in like that. The tribalism is, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 a lot. It seems a lot more. That's my sense. That's my experience. I should say is that it's more psychologically violent um, today than it was, you know, ten years ago, fifteen years. ago. I feel like there was a period of time where psychologically, I, the country, was more in that narrower band and and thus didn't have as much of that. Somehow, I actually feel that you know for you know, maybe good reasons and bad reasons, you know, physical violence has, has gone down. Um, you know, what caused that is what I mean by good reasons and bad reasons. Uh, why are there more swings? And in this area of race relations, it's more psychological, good. but, but you can have Charlottesville and people come out, right? Yeah. Uh, that they wouldn't have uh, maybe before. So this narrow this band good. of what are societal norms seem to have expanded, right? And people feel yeah. freer to swing within that. Jake, I want to hear the Canadian, especially the Canadian perspective in terms of how does this happen in Canada, but in the U.S., and I think this is one of the amazing things about the U.S., voices get heard. Um, and, and so this psychological violence, if you will, on all sides, I think, because I remember this in the 60s and 70s as a kid, and it felt kind of violent in that way, the way people would protest Vietnam and civil rights. And it was, 
really loud on all sides. Um, and then there's this whole period of time where voices kind of got muted. You know, it just was people weren't as active and in, in, in really pushing that stuff. And it didn't feel very threatening to anybody. It felt kind of good in a way. It was a nice, it's actually a very nice era for, you know, Mungla and me to raise our kids and stuff because uh, you're not feeling bombarded by it. But now all the voices are there again. And again, I think this is a real strength of the country that all these voices are there and they're expressing the kindest word, the most generous word is maybe dissatisfaction with the status quo and that we really must do something different. Um, and I think, I think some of it comes from a place of what you called out earlier, Jake, of people being feeling threatened you know, with globalization, with loss of jobs. Um, and they feel threatened. And then so the voice level goes way up and people then feel, you know, like it's psychological violence. And then others, you know, feeling like nothing's really changed. Yeah, we might have had a black president, but my life's still pretty much the same. Um, and then that voice level goes up. Yeah, Tom, just let's talk about Canada. And uh, I just want to come back to that on both sides, uh, so-called left or the right, the voice that louder on both sides. But uh, Tom? Politically, my political instincts are, 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 are fairly centrist or even right of center. So politically, um, you know, I, I, I would probably be some distance from Obama, but right from the beginning, when he started his candidacy, I just intrinsically liked the guy. I, it, 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 aside from his race, I just like the guy just the way he carries himself and then you know and and you know the the sort of uh the symbolic value of his election wasn't lost on me and, and i don't think i've ever been because I, I remember the election night and i don't think i've ever been as proud of the u.s as when he was elected i i i still remember that you know it, 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 just this sense of pride and i remember because Canadians always think of Americans a little bit like Neanderthals. And, and it was telling the, my Canadian colleagues, hey, look, you know, they just, you guys haven't done this. We just elected an African-American <laughs> president, right? And he's a really cool guy. And, and so, it, you know, th there was, I, I think I was swept up in that hope, even though I didn't fully agree with him, you know, on, on all of his politics, it, what it represented. His presidency was, as all presidencies, to some extent, a, a mixed bag. He was able to get some things done and some things not. People would say the reason they're not, he's not able to get some stuff done is because of its race. I did not believe that because I had a fundamentally more optimistic view of the U.S. than that. I, you know, I, I always thought America is better than that. And, and, the reason for my, you know, I feel very somewhat disillusioned now is I, I am now convinced after the Trump years that it was about race, that the reason he was not allowed to do some stuff was simply because he was a black man. And, and it, it, that, that's crushing for me because I, I you know, have such an optimistic view of the U.S. And, and going back to this idea of uh, pendulum swing, swings that, that the negative aspect of it it i i i agree with you you know the, the perspective of that so there were some loud voices in the 60s you know even as a child it, it, i i realized that people had really strong feelings but but now what seems to have changed is and and, and silicon valley had, had a lot to do with this is is the megaphone of social media seems to take extreme views and give them such it, it, 
overrepresentation that people start believing it's the norm. And, and I think it it tends to radicalize people on, on either side, but it's been much, you know, much more extreme on the right. And, and you know, th- there are many positives to uh, what what social media has done, but that it seems to me is, is one of the negative to 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 the point where I think you know democracy is imperiled. Going back to the, the to the Canada thing, there. Canada is always somewhat dampened and moderated relative to the U.S. because I think that's part of the Canadian instinct. They don't want to be too extreme. But anything that happens in the U.S., any kind of political swing in the U.S. is somewhat, there's it's such a huge gravitational pull. Um, it, Canada is pulled in a direction, and particularly Alberta. Alberta is sometimes referred to as the Texas of Canada, right? And, and so some of that polarization has, has entered here as well. Thank you for sharing that part of it, because that, that's actually very frightening for me. Um, you know, America's megaphone, to use that phrase from earlier, is huge on the world. And I do think we don't sometimes realize that type of soft power and the influence it has even you know, to our neighbors. I, I, I've always thought that the, the Canadian uh, culture, you know, was so strong. That it's just like, ah, those crazy Americans, let them do their own thing. And, and it's partly me, you know, having a romanticized view of, you know, the place of my childhood. Um, so it's, uh, it's kind of frightening and sad in some ways that, you know, that even Canada gets sucked into, you know, this madness. And yeah, I really like what you said, Tom, in terms of the symbolic value. Um, you know, you may be a little right of center. I may be a little left of center. I think someone like an Obama would have loved would love, not would have, would love the fact that you and I can speak with each other, right? Uh, openly have this kind of a dialogue uh, that there's real power and value in terms of having different perspectives, the dialectic. I think for a lot of Americans, Obama was not just symbolic. Uh, I think he was symbolic for everyone, but for some, that symbolism was actually a shock to the system. Yeah, it, it, you know, t- to some extent, you know, <laughs> The, the polarization in the U.S. Has, has has tugged on Canada, but it's been dampened somewhat. You know that that there is a greater regard for facts, and, and also a greater trust that, that that seems to have, particularly on the right, completely disintegrated uh, in the U.S. is any trust of authority, particularly governmental authority. It, it, there's more trust of authority in Canada than than there is. In, in the U.S., but it's been eroded somewhat. Yeah. You know, in many senses, this is broader than race. This is getting to what are facts, what is truth, what, therefore, what sense of government. It includes race, but it's much broader than that. So, uh, but let me just, uh, in the area of race, uh, let me raise uh, two things uh, and get your opinion. This podcast is sponsored by the Oak Guild Institute. Our society is heavy on opinions, but light on wisdom and scarce on time. At OGI, we seek to learn from unique experiences and diverse perspectives across many topics. We believe dialogue, even if contested, can open our minds and build compassion towards those with opposing viewpoints. Currently, we are a fledgling organization with a podcast and salon-style conversations bringing people together in person, and online. Please visit oakguild.org, O-A-K, 
guild.org to learn more and get involved. Uh, but let me just, uh, in the area of race, uh, let me raise uh, two things uh, and get your opinion. One is, uh, let's just say uh, May 2020 in George Floyd in the middle of the pandemic, that just like in the 60s and 70s, raised the consciousness and awareness of race vis-a-vis police brutality, and we're not there yet. Uh, and most people of all political spectrums would say, yes, it needed to be raised, whether you know, the people raising the issue were right or not. And they would say that about Martin Luther King back in the 60s, were honorable people or not. The consciousness was, uh, uh, was raised. And, and that's good. And for me personally, you know, for all of the years, I tried to avoid or even subconsciously the African-American experience. It, it forced me, even in my late 60s, to dive into that. So why does this keep happening? And when you get a people group that for 300 years were slaves, that's different than other people groups, including your family and mine. Kalapani or not, that still came over. They came over voluntarily, as opposed to crossing uh, the waters. Uh, ironically, Kalapani's, you know, dark waters. Uh, you, you, you have Africans or dark people crossing the dark waters in a dark ship in the in the in the hull of a ship. You know, it's so symbolic in in many many uh, ways, and none of us had to experience that. So. Beyond the local tragedy that was George Floyd, uh, it did create an awakening in a lot of people for that. Uh, as tragic as it was, I, I, I think it was good. Um, yet, yet we see uh, the, the, the diversions and the, and, and, and the backstops. And I'd like your opinion both on uh, the George Floyd situation and whether we can move forward and it'll take us to a better place, but also the current controversies, critical race theories, one, right? Uh, and I personally believe there's a lot of diversionary tactics going on, uh, but, but talk, if you will, uh, before we wrap up about what George Floyd and that experience means, and what about the current controversies, whether it's BLM or critical race theory. Let's, let's start with Raj. I love the phrase you used. You said it a few times there, consciousness raising. I think that's what was happening in the 60s and part of the 70s. I think I, I really know that's what's happening now. I believe, again, you know, I was just a child in the 60s, as we all were. Uh, so a lot of it is by you know, studying and paying attention. I believe the church, I believe the poets, you know, we call them pop singers, folk singers, you know, rock singers, but they were poets. Uh, I believe the storytellers, the writers then, and I believe today, you know, people of faith, people, you know, who tell stories, people who try to make sense of the world, um, that they, we, this podcast is part of these storytelling. We've been telling stories nonstop, the three of us, some of us more guilty of it than others. We can raise that consciousness. And it is an important part of the activity. You know, the old necessary, perhaps not sufficient, but really necessary. I think just by itself, it causes change to happen. Just by raising the consciousness, sharing our experiences, sharing our stories, you know, sharing our hopes and visions, 
I think change happens you know, just by itself from that, you know, more from other things. I think sometimes, I, I loved how you framed all this. And I, again, thank you many, many times. I thank you for years to come for this conversation, Jake. You know, of course, you too, Tom, but Jake, you know, not just as our older brother, but really as the one who thought through this. So I love the framework, but in hindsight, maybe it's not about the Reagan days and the Bush days and the Clinton days and the Obama days and the Trump days and the Biden days. Maybe it's more about, you know, our days and the politics is less what we ought to focus on, you know, wrapping ourselves in the flag in some right and wrong ways, left and right ways, et cetera. Um, so I, I just feel like somehow there is a dysfunction in the politics that the rest of America, maybe Canada too, isn't fully buying into, and all these other voices are coming in. Um, and a good part of America is buying into the dysfunction and amplifying it. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Raj. Yeah, I mean, because that. You know, George Floyd, the the incident was caught on tape. It, 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 it's visual. It, it's hard as a human being not to be sympathetic or empathetic to that, you know, to 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 see that 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 somehow this is just fundamentally wrong. And 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 that part of it is is good. Uh, to, to me, the the struggle is, you know. I, I agree with you, Raj. It, it, the The politics itself has become so polarized. I I, I doubt the solution is going to come from politics. It, it, it's got to come from some other from some other avenue where we see each other more as individuals rather than as tribes. And I wonder, you know, that 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 there's this push and pull. I, I I do think that the overall trajectory, if you look at it up from from the '60s to today, the overall trajectory of issues of race is probably some degree of improvement. But there's this tension, and I think King felt it. I think Obama felt it. Where between the rate of change uh, and 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 the change itself. You need people in society who are who are sort of the envelope pushers saying, we got to change, we got to change. And that often comes from the left. But if we try to affect the change really rapidly, you get a more severe backlash. And, and it's finding that, I think Obama as a politician really, I saw a recent um, sort of biography, a documentary on him. And, and if you look at a lot of his stuff, his success was he was always trying to balance those two things, how to affect this change without, you know, totally destroying the situation where, where there's going to be such a backlash where we'll go backwards. And, and is finding that right balance between those two, winning hearts and minds, how do we do that? I suspect it's got to be much more on an individual basis than I, I think the politics is so broken now. I don't know if it's going to happen that way. Yeah, it's funny um, as, a middle, as a middle child, Tom, I just resonate completely with what you said. Um, and it's one of the reasons I've, I think I've been very, very fond of uh, Obama. I think probably the overriding reason is because he's from Chicago, but leave that aside. I really resonate with what you say in terms of um, you know, from the middle and being able to see both sides of it. I do think that those people who 
not necessarily want to break everything, not the nihilists in the world, um, but who just are accelerators, you know, who, who won't be the middle one, you know, won't be the middle child. You know, they'll be the youngest one. They'll be the Jakes. They'll be the oldest ones. And they'll just strike out and, and make things happen. I think there's a tremendous place for them. I think the Silicon Valley is based on a lot of those types of hearts and minds. Um, yes. and, and the moderates, you know, people like myself, uh, it, it's, it's becomes much more incremental and we can see the good in both, the bad in both. And it's just like, oh, okay. And, and there's some stasis as a result of that. Um, and I'm guilty of that. So I, I see myself in the mirror when I say those things. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I definitely, we, we need the envelope pushers because otherwise people like me would just go for the status quo. But but it, it, in in this documentary about Obama, we always think of him, or we we instinctively think of him as a black man. But he's a mixed race guy, and oh. I he could it wasn't an abstract concept for him because he had white grandparents. You know, particularly his grandfather had had some really shockingly racist views, but he could very tangibly step into those shoes yes. and say. You know that that it wasn't this guy wasn't just a totally negative guy. It was, and and so he would see it from both perspectives. And I think we need some people like that. We need all of us, don't we? <laughs> yeah. So uh, let me ask uh, both of you a final question. But I'm going to set it up with uh, with a couple of props and use those. And the props might fail. So, uh, uh, but but use it uh, to frame the question. And it goes to just what you're talking about, right? that uh, we need the envelope pushers. We need to, from a country standpoint, we need to move to a more perfect human. From a, from a human or even a theological standpoint, we need to move towards more redemption. Uh, but the question is, how do we do it? And so he, here are the props, if you will. And I'll give you a point of view. And, and as you respond, uh, you, you can react to whether the props uh, didn't make it or whether it doesn't hold, but I like your actual point of view. I started with this book, Little Black Sambo. Is it racist? Sure. That was the culture of the time, right? Am I going to go one, all of this off the shelves? It, it, probably not. That was, you know, uh, whatever their intentions, the, they wrote that, that book. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to, the past is the past. We move on. Today is the first day of the rest of our life, right? Then you look at what the, the right wing will beat up on, which is critical race theory actually came out of academia. And if it's an academic debating point in the 90s, great, uh, but not my idea. And I actually read this book. I don't think it's used that much, but if this were mandatory curriculum, I wouldn't want my grandson really to be, uh, uh, this is just my personal point of view, to 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 really uh be wallowing in this and my point is yes we want to push the envelope but the way to push the envelope is not to make people feel bad right there's other ways to push the envelope and and, and have dialogue uh, that's my hope right uh and so with 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 that premise uh let me ask both of you in the, in, a, in a parting sense what are your hopes and fears for the world? What are your hopes and fears for your grandkids? And how do we make that happen? Uh, let's, let's, let's start with you, Raj. Boy, this is a big one. 
uh, this is this is why you know i i keep uh i keep robert frost in front of me you know miles to go before i sleep miles to go before i sleep you know promises to keep and yeah my promise really is you know to you know, at one point it was you know my parents my siblings that you know that evolved to my wife you know then evolved to my children and now it's really about you know my granddaughter and really uh, more abstractly, more, you know, all of my grandchildren. It's both a hope and it's a belief. Um, and it's a belief actually in our children. I think there's something about our children and how they grew up. And I, and I won't take any credit. I can give you and your spouse's credit. I can give Mungla, my wife, all the credit. But just I give more of the time they grew up in and maybe the space that they grew up in where there were a lot of voices and they're respectfully listening to those voices and the way they're raising their children. Um, and, you know, what I'm seeing uh, in, in my daughter and my son-in-law and the bookshelf that my granddaughter has and has this wide variety of books. You know, there's, there's you know, Make Way from Ducklings, you know, from back in the 40s and 50s, um, when you might not have, you know, a white figure in that book at all. So in terms of recognizing yourself, seeing yourself, you don't see that. But you see a duckling family, and that's, you know, black, white, green. I think, you know, Mr. Mallard has a green top. You know, it's like, okay. It's a beautiful book. And then you go, you know, to today, and, and you know, you read, you know, you know, Matt de la Pena, you know, on Market Street, and he's written the book uh, illustrated by uh, Christian Robinson, a young black man. And it's just like, oh, and, and you know, this is Market Street in San Francisco. It's like, wow. And then you read, you know, The Undefeated, you know, by Kwame Alexander. And I'm sad to say I can't remember the illustrator's name. Um, and, and in a poetic form, you know, tells the African-American story. Um, and so my hope is that our grandchildren are read these books. I'm not smart enough to translate what academic critical race theory means. Um, you know, I know enough about it, to make some sense of it, but I, I think it was hijacked um, and used by people who like power and whatever they can use, they use. Um, and so it's like, okay, so I kind of say whatever to that, and I don't have a whole lot of control on that. But I have a lot of, a funny word, but a lot of influence with my granddaughter. I love her dearly. She loves her. She calls me Babaji. Uh, she, she loves her Babaji, and we read, read, read. And I read her all this stuff. And I genuinely believe, you know, that, it, like I say, it's a, it's a hope and a belief that she's going to make allies, you know, and they're not all going to be, you know, little Indian American kids. They're not all going to be little San Franciscans. They live in the city, you know, and they're not all going to be Californians. They're not even going to all be Americans. I genuinely believe she's going to build all these allies um, and then they're going to, you know, create some problems, but they're going to solve some problems too. Um, so, you know, I, 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 and this is genuine. This is not, you know, Pollyannish. This is, 
a genuine belief that, and it's not about American exceptionalism either. I think in many ways, we're in this swinging back for the world. Um, and so for a big chunk of time, I'm really grateful. My granddaughter was born in this time when the pendulum starting to swing back. Um, it's just like, oh, okay. And, and I'm, you know, under no false pretense that they're going to mess things up too. I think that's the human condition, um, uh, that they will mess some things up too. But I think there's something about a, a tighter world uh, that, uh, that they're on to. Um, and maybe we just had hints of it because our parents helped us leave, you know, villages, you know, leave cosmopolitan cities in one part of the world and see a lot more. Uh, but these guys, they see so much more, so much faster than we did, you know? Um, so yeah, that's where I am with it. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much. Now we're, we're starting yeah. to have grandkids. It's the next generation. Yeah. The world they're going to grow up in. Uh, what are your hopes, aspirations, as well as fear, uh, fears? Okay. And then you can reverse the order. Yeah. Okay. So I, th th there's part of me sort of along the lines of where Raj was going, that's quite optimistic. I definitely think that my kids are are much more colorblind than I am, just just instinctively. And and the direct evidence I would give for that is, if you just look, you know, both in my own family and then elsewhere, is is the number of interracial marriages. Yes. In our generation, it, it was essentially unheard of. I mean, or, or it was real oddity. You know, you, you get pointed at if 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 that was the case. And and even my own reaction. So my daughter-in-law is is Chinese Canadian. She's first generation Chinese. And you know, it, it, given my own dynamic, I, I I thought I would be a lot more shocked about it than I am. I I, I just love her as a person. She's fabulous, right? And. And, and it doesn't seem that odd to me and, and to my son. I don't think it, it matters at all. And, and, and I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. My granddaughter is going to be half Chinese. This is so weird a concept with me because you know, it, it is not a, a fully Indian kid. Uh, and, and, and so I think the more of that that there is, that, that then it's very tangible, you know, how do you be racist when your granddaughter is this mixed race kid? You know, and so th that's where I have optimism. I, I hope the politics that my fears is the politics get so broken and people are willing to do anything to stay in power, that that the staying in power becomes the the you know the only morality. Yeah. Uh, then I, I, you know, it, that, that is, that is my biggest fear. What I, affects the most change. And it's along the lines of where you are going, Roger, you're talking about the stories you want to read to your granddaughter. I think those are always the things that affect the most change, like the African-American story, just the narratives. It, it is so heroic. What that culture is not more bitter than it has every right to be that, that that in that crucible of this incredible injustice which they were subjected to they make a, a lot of the most original things in american society from music to, to many other things you know that they took the you know 
total lemons and, and, and somehow made something beautiful out of it is astonishing. That, that story in, in whatever form needs to be told. And I think that affects change because it's hard not to resonate with that, those kinds of stories. Thank you both so much. I'll just, uh, my perspective on this is uh, similar to yours. I'm, I'm generally optimistic. One is, you know, I, I believe there is a good God. I mean, you don't have to believe that, but I happen to, and I believe eventually there will be redemption. And, and part of how it'll happen, all the current um, machinations notwithstanding, a little bit, Tom, of what you said, when, when the races start to get mixed up, they by by definition become less of a threat. You you got to create different threats, not not those kind of threats, right? And that that's already happening, uh, and 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 I'm glad for that. Uh, two, you both said it. Uh, I think telling stories is how loving dialogue can happen. I think we should encourage stories. And and then last, I'll I'll, I'll just say. Uh, the, the, what I would want my grandkids to do, and I'll just copy from uh, how Jesus reacted uh, when he was falsely accused and he was uh, being put to death. He said, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I hope my grandkids have that kind of, you can call it slack or you can call it grace. If you don't, if somebody who's hurting you or grieving, uh, uh, injuring you doesn't know what they're doing, give them some grace. At the same time, when somebody does know what they're doing, just like Jesus, there were a lot of money changers at the temple. He called them out. And my hope for my grandkids is they give grace as well as have the courage to call out. That would, that would be my hope. But I'm, I'm generally optimistic. Th this has just been such a rich conversation. I, uh, uh, I, I want to thank you uh, both. I mean, we just uh, covered the gamut and we talked about race, but we talked about a lot more than that. And I think uh, we told stories to each other. And I, I, I think that was a beautiful thing. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Jake. Thank you, Tom. And, you know, that, that, that closing around the mixing that's happening in the world, it actually did start with us, with our generation and our parents bringing us. We are also in that sense, mixed, right? Yeah. yeah our our DNA may not suggest it, but every uh, every bone in our body suggests, you know, that mixing. And then as it progresses, you know, to our children, you know, your daughter-in-law, my daughter-in-law, and then our children's children. And yeah, there's some, there, it's not just a, a kumbaya. I think there's some amazing things that come out of that blend, uh, you know, greater creativity, certainly, you know, greater um forgiveness and embracing of difference so uh so thank you both this is uh, this has just been wonderful um yeah thank you guys i learned a lot i really did yeah uh, it was a joy <laughs> peace see you guys thank you so much to jake chaco raj oza and tom chaco we deeply appreciate your candor and reflecting on your experiences and sharing your optimism for the future. This episode ends the three-part conversation with these three Indian-born American men experiencing challenge and progress in the United States over the last 50 years. While we recognize this podcast did not touch all racial or immigrant challenges and opportunities in America, we hope the many threads of conversation provided a unique perspective and fuel for further thought and dialogue. 
And to close, a repeat of Raja's hope for the future. Forgiveness and embracing of difference. And our host, Jake's method of how to get there. Telling stories is how loving dialogue can happen. This was the Oak Guild Institute's Life of the Mind podcast, where our curiosity is explored through unique experiences and diverse perspectives. We encourage you, the listener, to share this episode with another and start a dialogue. To find out about new episodes, subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And visit oakguild.org to learn more about our other efforts to deepen and broaden the conversation.